I'm Heidi Zuckerman, and this is Conversations About Art. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life, values, and always about why they think art matters. This is Conversations About Art. Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning in today. You might be able to hear the birds in the background here, and that feels like a particularly apt introduction to this conversation with my friend Fred Tomaselli, one of the first artists whose studios I ever took a group to in New York probably almost three decades ago was Fred and we've been friends ever since. He is an incredible artist and it's so exciting to me that now I actually live and work where he grew up and I live in the landscape that inspired much of what he's created today. Being walloped by the ocean, just like losing myself in this sort of the terror beauty of being like held under by giant waves. And in fact, we were just able to add three works of his to the collection of the Orange County Museum of Art. So I love the cyclical nature of things, and that's one of the things we talk about today, in addition to birds and also the wind coming off the ocean. So these are the things that inspire me now and things that inspired Fred growing up here. So I I love that you asked me if I was stuck on the 405 this morning, and I sometimes think about that Saturday Night Live skit where they talk in this really kind of valley inflection, and they talk about one highway to the next highway to the next highway to the next highway to the next highway, and it's, it's a hilarious skit, and it's very specific to people who are from this area. So your reference to the 405 converts to the fact that you are from here. And I was really excited to receive an email from you the other day to talk about what it feels like to have a work of yours added to the collection of the Orange County Museum of Art, because this was this was where you grew up and this was your museum. So that's my my intro to, I guess, this conversation, because we know each other not from California, from New York, and but yet we're both from here. And I was like kind of thinking back actually to some of the things that rocked my world. And one of the, there was a lot of stuff going on at UC Irvine that was brand new. And one of them I remember seeing was uh, an Eric Orr installation when I was 15 in 1971. I think it was the Infinity Space and it was his first Gansfeld. It was a limitless space. I thought art was like Michelangelo and Salvador Dali. So I think for me, it was just like, I couldn't believe that an experiential installational space could be art. And that led to me then seeing the Bruce Nauman retrospective at LACMA in 72, the next year when I was 16, which continued to rock my world. And when I saw it, I, I sort of thought that it sort of was like Disneyland, but instead of being the happiest place on earth, it was the most paranoid place on earth. And it was really funny. So those things really got me started. 
I'm struck by the comment about the emotional response to art and the idea of, you know, what's happy and what's paranoid and what's funny. And there's so many different emotions, I think, that your work evokes for me. And I wonder which you privilege. Do you think about the emotional conveyance of of what you're creating? I do in that I like there to be parallel levels of experience and parallel levels of emotional response that one could have a sublime experience or like it could be comedic or it could be melancholy and that it could all be loaded into one object depending maybe on the viewer's mood or what they choose to focus on. And, and I sort of feel that like maybe my favorite art is the art that is open-ended, evocative, and endless, and that it can be interpreted in multiple ways. So in addition to going up into the foothills and, and getting high when you were growing up here in Orange County, how else did you spend your time? You talked about the beach. Did you spend time in the water? Well, first of all, I also spent a lot of time in the car. <laughs> and so the car was like an environment unto itself. It was like a moving domicile. You know, you kind of lived in your car. And, and, you know, we did a lot of things happened in the car and a lot of amazing things, you know, like sex, drugs, like driving around listening to music. It was all kind of happening inside the car. But when I was out of the car, I did like being in the water. And I consider myself a sort of a fucked up transcendentalist and that, you know, I have a complicated relationship with that. But, you know, some of my transcendental experiences were with psychedelics, but some of the other more like more day to day transcendental experiences that I had was just being walloped by the ocean, just like losing myself in this sort of the terror beauty of being like held under by giant waves. And my parents, they said that they spent half their time at the beach worrying about whether I was dead or not, because I would just go into the water and be there all day. And I just liked getting walloped by it and, you know, just scooting around and body surfing and bodyboarding and surfing through this environment. That was really important to me growing up. You know, we, we share a love of nature uh, and, you know, not just being in it, but the things that you can do in it. I often say, like, I love nature almost as much as I love art. And as I continue in my life, there are moments now that I actually love nature more than I love art, which I never thought could be the case. And you've done an incredible job of, you know, finding the space within art for nature as well. And I'm wondering how you think about the two to pull back a little bit, it's sort of like a lot of the things, my work kind of is the result of an additive process of all the things that I'm interested in. And instead of, I don't like tease out one aspect of my life. It sort of seems like I heap all my enthusiasms into it. All my hobbies get in there. I'd like to hopefully believe that there's that multiplicity of realities and experiences is available to the viewer. Nature's a part of it. Nature's a big part of it. Like my interest in gardening, it isn't like the wilderness, right? It's nature and culture and civilization and the hand of man going in and being up nature. That's a, a form of nature. And I almost think of like, I've taken that practice and almost applied it to my own work. Like I almost feel like when I'm making a painting, I'm sort of gardening the elements inside of it, you know, weeding it, manicuring it, 
nurturing certain elements in it. You know, maybe that part of nature is a guide. I really believe strongly identify with these sort of transcendental moments I've had inside of nature. A lot of it has to do with water. I like immersing myself. I like swimming. As I said before, I like being walloped by the waves. I like fly fishing. For me, it's just sort of like being immersed inside of it. To me, seems very akin to the pre-modernist ideal of losing yourself in a great painting and the world that a painting represents. When you lose yourself in the sublime space of a painting, it's a funny dialectic between that rhetoric and let's say the rhetoric that comes out of Thoreau and Emerson and this idea of losing yourself in the sublime or like losing yourself in the Kantian sublime of like the various levels of sublime of terror and awe and wonderment. And so all those things sort of, I try to all heap them all into my work. I, I like your continued use of, of the word trans, you know, the transcendental, you know, and, and I think a lot about transcendence. And so it's activating or, or broadening somehow that, that idea of transcendence, or I guess that's what I'm, I'm most drawn to within art is, is when those transcendent moments happen. It's almost like addictive. I mean, it is addictive because for me, it's not prescribed. I can't make it happen. It just sometimes does. And when it does, it's so phenomenal. And part of that is the then continued search for that same kind of feeling. There are so many levels. I think that like when we're talking about this idea of the transcendent, I think sometimes people can get hung up on a cliche about transcendence and that it becomes almost kitsch, you know, like a world without shit in it isn't really the world. You know what I mean? Like somehow or another, we have, you have to include the sort of the pathogens of life, in my opinion, and somehow have those impurities be recognized. And if you can still have a transcendent experience while still recognizing the dirt of life, I think it's getting something close to true, something truer than just kitsch. I mean, I'm also interested, though, in, in perception, obviously related, but tangential. You know, my perception of how I feel and how the world affects me is also maybe part of the work as well. Say more about that, because that's certainly not a static thing. When I saw that Bruce Nauman retrospective in 1972, it seemed to me like a Disneyland of the repressed, like all the things that you weren't supposed to feel this sort of paranoid terror of living in a body, you know, just sort of seemed to be like front and center. And I didn't have anybody explain it to me, which I feel is a blessing. Like I just went there with a bunch of my dumb friends and we drove up from Santa Ana to, to LACMA and saw it and we didn't know what we were seeing and I didn't have it decoded or anything. So I came up with my own ideas about what I thought it was. And I think that sort of stayed with me and my first works tended to use the tropes of theme parks. My first works were installations like immersive installations that were about the mechanics of reality, uh, dislocation. I wanted to like deliver escapist experiences while also commenting on the mechanics of escapism. At that time, Ronald Reagan was president. So to me, having an ex-actor being a president seemed like an ascendancy 
of the unreal. It seemed like almost a meta presidency. I never thought it could get worse or more dislocated, but it did. But from there, I started thinking about drugs and how my perception had been modified by drugs and my whole culture had been modified by drugs, both the over-the-counter meds that were being prescribed by the psychiatric industry and the countercultural drugs. And that somehow that wasn't really being acknowledged in any of the other artworks that I was seeing. And I wanted to put that in there because, you know, all art is about perception. And that felt like a really important sort of cultural um, trope to look into. And since then, I resisted this for years, but uh, I have since been uh, starting to include bits of the media or starting to include media as part of this sort of menu of reality dislocations that are available to us. I might end up getting into some Zoom stuff in my work <laughs> if this new post-COVID reality continues. But yeah, so that's sort of where I've, I've been at for the last, I don't know, 30 years. Your you know, more recent work with the New York Times front page is more easily directly understood reference to this current time, right? And a recording of, of the surrealism, you know, and in your last answer, it really highlights the fact that that's what you've always been doing, um, that your work has always been kind of a personal commentary on the reality that you know. And that makes sense. You know, I, I had the great privilege of working with you on a retrospective and spending a lot of time looking at your work, both with you, but also by myself, which is what happens when you're working on exhibitions. And to come back to something that you think you know, like I was looking at work that I thought I knew, and then finding within it these embedded pathways to not in any like didactic way, but pathways for the viewer to experience these different observations that were relevant to you and then to me and, and anyone who's looking. And the incorporation of the text that's in the headlines from the New York Times seemingly reduces the openness of what you're saying, right? Because it's like, respond to this specific thing. Like, where were you on this day? Or what were you thinking when you, when this, you know, life event happened? Yeah, it's like unabashedly, almost like screaming back to the world, like, are you paying attention? You know, it's like that Bruce Nauman piece, right? Like one of my favorite pieces of all time is the Bruce Nauman, you know, pay attention motherfuckers, right? Which is inverted text and a mirror and like asking people like, you know, are you paying attention? I wonder about that energetically for you. Is that is that right? That might be one level. That's not a level I would deny. But I there's a lot of reasons why that has continued since 2005. It's sort of continued to be a little thing that I do alongside my larger works. And there's a lot of reasons that I do it, but I guess I'm not sure how overtly political I think they are. I sort of feel like generally speaking, I sort of locate them closer to say Moreau's constellation drawings. 
in that he did those during the height of World War II, and they're these really cosmic works, but they're done while Europe is on fire. And uh, at that point, one of the most calamitous moments in you know, modern times. And I sort of feel like that when I choose to like bracket my more cosmic investigations with the text of the catastrophe of, of the world, I maybe more or less am saying that like, the world may be going to hell, but art is still worth making it's still worth considering yes pay attention but there's also an optimistic spirit i think about yes we're still making art it still is necessary i've also feel that like the media scape for what it is has just so totally mutated our perception of reality especially with all the various confirmation bubbles that we one chooses to live in now that we're all kind of starting to live in these sort of media reality bubbles and I sort of felt like that was just really germane to what I've been up to as an artist with all the other investigations I've done with culture in my work. I think you personally and your work is inherently optimistic. It kind of ties back to what we started talking about in terms of emotions and the emotions that you observed at Disneyland and also in in the first work and, and then like a humor that comes from absurdity. Maybe there's some social commentary in there, but it's not political. It's, it's really like observant. I'd like to call them social politics. I mean, I try to take what happened to me and then try to bracket it with the larger culture that surrounds me so that hopefully it's not just me being solipsistic. And I'd like to be able to communicate something broader, a broader experience. So I try to take the social into consideration. I mean, I think that it's absurd to be an artist at a certain point, but I also don't know how else I could live. And I don't know how I could live without art. I try to acknowledge all those realities when I'm making my work. It's also beautiful. It's beautiful to make art and to be an artist and to, and to have an artistic path. Well, yeah, it is. It can also be really torturous, too. <laughs> I don't want to... I mean... I'm so lucky to be an artist. Don't get me wrong. I think it's it's like great. I mean, this is the life. I can't believe that I can be an artist full time. Sometimes it just blows my mind. But I'm also, I try to put in the things I love and the things that I'm fascinated with. I'm taking you to places. I might as well take you to places I want to live in. You know, I'm, I'm making the work I want to see. And I should say that, like, you know, when I first started this project, I wasn't seeing the work I wanted to see out in the world. I felt like there was something only I could make. I just decided to address that issue by making the things I wanted to see. If other people want to see them, that's that's great. <laughs> it's a really interesting through line to, to some of these conversations that I'm having. It's this notion of, you know, what's missing you know, what's missing in the world and observing something that isn't there and then stepping in to to create it. And, you know, that's in some levels a very entrepreneurial way of thinking also, you know, where it's like you see a gap. Sometimes I think people think art's really separate, you know, from life or from business or from a variety of different things, but, you know, it's not. It's these systems of thinking and seeing and doing. And I would love to pick up on this phrase that you just used and that I also am drawn to is this notion of, you know, incorporating what you love. And I think love is such a powerful word. So we just went with my whole family to London to celebrate my 
my stepfather, my mother's husband's 70th birthday. And we did this kind of toast where everyone went around the table. They said one thing that they love about him. And then at the end, he said one thing that he loves about himself. And I introduced the idea because my son had had that done for him on his birthday. And he shared that. And it was so interesting because, you know, there were a lot of people around the table, myself and my siblings and, you know, our kids and, you know, their kids. And some people like really embraced the idea of saying like what they loved right away and other people kind of like didn't use the word and kind of danced around it and so I love that you use the word you know and you talked about the things that you love and you've referenced some of them already and I'd love to ask that question you know what what are some of the things that you love? Generally speaking I would say that curiosity is been the key to where I've gone, going down these various paths, finding these wormholes and following through and how they link up with other worlds. I think that if curiosity seems to be maybe the baseline where all the other loves come from. I have a multiplicity of curiosity, except when it comes to numbers. I think I'm woefully ignorant about what number, I mean, numbers are, are awesome, but I just, I don't even know where to start. But when it comes to nature and culture, it seems like there's nothing that's really off limits. Well, I mean, I love nature, obviously. I love being in nature. I love to see radical new art that just blows my mind. I love music. I love movies. I love books. I also, with books, I love the taxonomies of nature. I like to name things. I'm like a birder, so I need to know what I'm seeing. I need to know the names of plants. Once I find out the names of plants, I want to know like what they need to live. What's their life cycle? Are they indigenous or are they invasive? Basically, because of that curiosity thing, it's just sort of like, it's like a rhizome and it just sort of spreads. So a love of, say, nature doesn't stop with just the natural world. It also includes the political world. It includes like water rights and the displacement of native peoples, like what's the history of slavery? Who are the crazy utopianists that came and imposed their weird idea of Eden onto this landscape. I can't just look at a beautiful, like I can't look at the mountains and just see the mountains. I see all, all the other things that come with it. I wanted to ask you a little bit about music because I know that is something that you have been super interested in for a long time and it's separate from, from what you do, but it's really key to who you are. And it would be great to have you talk a little bit about it. You know, a lot of like my youth was about getting outside of myself, getting outside of my own head, losing myself. This idea of losing yourself into a crowd is one of those like terror sublimes. It could either be like awful, like a soccer hooliganism type of riot world or losing yourself in a mosh pit or something like that. But I mean, I did try to incorporate that into a few works of mine. But my, my, my general history is that I started out going to, you know, shows in um, Orange County and uh, LA. And I think that I really started forming a lot of, you know, sort of identities around these various isms. But I think I was a little lost in the 70s. I felt like out of step with the world. I felt really alienated. Like I felt like a real alien until I found punk rock. And I'm a little late maybe, but like in 1978, I started going to punk shows in Los Angeles. And I found another group of alien kids that felt similarly 
alienated. And I felt like it was really important to me. It, it was my Prozac in a weird way. It was a way of like kind of managing my stress and my anxiety. And I've just been like really interested in music ever since. But on the other hand, like once punk rock got really like around 1980, when punk rock got toxically male, I guess, I started looking into other places. So by like say 81 or 82, I might one night go to a Black Flag concert. And the next night I might go to see Philip Glass, you know, or Captain Beefheart or Steve Wright. So for me, ever since, I don't know, about 1980, it's been really eclectic. It's interesting the commonalities between your feelings and what you're seeking and, you know, the idea of kind of being lost or trying to lose yourself within these things, right? Whether they're drugs or the ocean or, you know, the mosh pit. And as you were describing the mosh pit of a punk show, you said that some of that translates specifically into some of your work, into a painting maybe. Can you talk about that specific piece? Yeah, there was one work I did expecting to fly, and it was a stage diver sort of flying through space with like hands below him. I mean, I'm, I'm describing this thing, but it sounds really banal, but that's what I was using as a jumping off point. And, you know, like for me, like that was the kind of height of a sort of a sublime moment, this idea of losing yourself, jumping in through space above a crowd and then expecting that crowd to break your fall as you fall into it. And I was using uh, the term expecting to fly. I was sort of like linking maybe like hardcore and Neil Young in the same work. I remember the last super crazy hardcore show. I just remembered some guy jumping off the stage and then seeing a Doc Martin boot just coming towards my face until everything went black. <laughs> and, and I ended up finding myself on the floor, like I had been knocked out. And I found myself on the floor. People were really nice. And they helped me up and somebody got me my glasses. And I was like pretty dazed. Probably my third concussion I've had in my life. I think I was, I was pretty wiped out. And I think that was the last time I went to a show. But so I was trying to take all that energy and put it into that one work. I also did a piece. I think we showed it at the we did show it at, at the Aspen Art Museum of every rock band I can remember seeing, which was as much about the holes of my memory and trying to remember what, it, what I'd actually witnessed in life. So I think all those things, I don't know where we're going with this, but I've touched on music from various moments in my life, continuously and for many years. So I want to ask you to talk about the process of, of making your work, you know, for our listeners because I sometimes think when you're very close to something, you forget that there are other people that don't know anything about it. And so I do want to ask you to kind of describe the process of making your work and um, your use of collage and your layering and what your materials are. With my paintings, I've sort of developed a technique over the years that involves working on a wooden panel. And I usually begin with collage elements that have been scanned and cut out and printed and then arranged usually in a flat way uh, on this board and then glued down. Sometimes I'll paint like with acrylic paint or gouache underneath on that first layer. And then what I end up doing is I'll then coat it with a layer of epoxy resin. 
or two or three, depending on what I'm putting in there. Sometimes I embed real things like historically, it hasn't been for 15 years, but I used to put in pills in my work. I've put in bugs, leaves, many psychoactive leaves, but not necessarily psychoactive anymore. It can sometimes be cannabis leaves, but it can also be datura, it could be roses, it could be figs. And then once I do that layer of resin, then I'll sand it down and then paint on top of that layer of resin, sometimes adding more collage elements and then layering in another layer. Sometimes these multiple layers can stack up. So what you end up having is a sort of a almost three-dimensional experience with the shadow play. Things float along the top and on the bottom. And they, they sort of tend to soak up light in a way that is probably really affected or probably indebted to light and California light and space art and finish fetish art in the way they can hold light and glow uh, because of the light that's trapped inside the resin layers. So basically what I do is I work a lot like a surfboard shaper, it's similar technology. And then I wax it like a car, like a guy with like an auto body store that would like, I wax it with turtle wax and so it's, it's a little bit of the car culture and a little bit of the surf culture that I grew up with is all embedded in there. A lot of blue culture, blue collar activity mixed with art making activity that ends up being the, uh, the end product of the work. Thank you for that super succinct and I think important to give that context. So synesthesia, do you have it? I have experienced it, but only under the, in, the, in a chemically sublime way. I don't have it in my day-to-day -day walking reality. I know that Harry Smith, uh, you know, the crazy visionary beatnik artist of the 50s who made the folk anthology, made these amazing films. He spent 20 years thinking, trying to investigate synesthesia. And right at the end of his life, he said, synesthesia does not exist. I feel like sometimes I've had experiences that are similar. Are, are you a synesthesia? It's interesting because I don't have it either, but I've always been kind of obsessed with it. And I've had experiences, not really of being able to hear color, but sometimes I feel like I can feel color. You know, like there's like I'll feel a sensation and it has like an associated like image or like a color. So not like a clear image. So for me, it's like more tactile than it is oral. It's happened through meditation. I think that's what's kind of opened that portal in my mind because it's only in the last few years and it's it hasn't happened a lot. It's only happened a couple of times, but I'm super curious about it and I had an experience when I was, you know, meditating with a with a monk and we were meditating together, right? And and like he was kind of guiding it and then there was a like the guiding and then there was like quiet, but it really felt like a journey and there were moments where it was like I could see kind of a, like a pathway. The objective, right, was to not be distracted by really beautiful and interesting things that would be presenting like off the pathway like just to the either edge and it's like life you know there are these things that that show up that could take you a totally different direction there's you know seductions if you're trying to stay with where you're going and then there were things that were could kind of just start to see them like towards the end and 
of this pathway. And then like the first time it happened, I got nervous. And so like I stopped. And I feel like somehow, you know, I've talked about this before, and I'm sure with you also, I'm really interested in that 90% plus or minus whatever of our brain that scientifically we know we don't use. And, you know, what are things that what happens in that space? I think part of that is linked to this synesthetic experience. You know, like, like I said, I haven't had been able to achieve that experience. What I do sometimes have, it's not synesthesia, but I sometimes get empathetic physiological response to things. Like if I see like a video of a guy like face planting, there will be like, I will literally this weird, like surging, I wouldn't call it pain, but some empathetic sort of energy flows through me. It's almost painful, like almost like it happened to me. Like I feel really bad for the person, but I'm also really physically shook up by it. And it's, it's about some physiological mechanism that gets woke up in me through seeing a visual phenomenon. So this visual thing is turning into physical pain or like a kind of pain. I just call it an empathetic response. That's about the closest thing as I can get. I've experienced something similar to that, but not by seeing it, just by hearing about it. And only for people that I'm connected to, my kids or, you know, my boyfriend, you know, hearing about something that's happened that hurt them, I feel hurt. If I know that it's fiction, it doesn't hurt me as much. Somehow it has to present itself as this has really happened to a person. This is a real thing. It's an emotional response that happens through visual cues that hits me in a physical way. Like I physically, there's something physical that goes on. I think if I saw enough of that kind of stuff on the internet, I'd probably faint or something. Cause I yeah. would be overcome. I would be overcome with some physiological malady. What are you reading right now? I recently just had foot surgery. So I spent a lot of time on the couch and I started by streaming the entire Warhol's diaries. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's amazing. I learned a whole lot about him and uh, a, a whole lot about Warhol's inner life, which is like something that he sort of had off limits for years, but you realize how personal this quote unquote impersonal work is. But that led to me reading a bunch of uh, biographies and autobiographies of downtown denizens. So um, I then went to uh, John Giorno's autobiography. I don't know if you've read it, but it's insane. There are places that are so pornographic that I just could not believe it. But that was pretty amazing. He's a really good writer. After that, I read diary excerpts related to Rene Ricard and another denizen of the factory. And that was really great as well. I highly recommend it. Well, most of the stuff prior to that was, I just got done rereading Sapiens because that book is so dense that every time I finish it, I feel like I, that my brain only took in a small portion and I can like put my straw back into that book and, you know, reread it. It's like rereading it all over again. I mean, one page can have so much information. That's JP's favorite book and he gives it to everyone and he thinks it should be like mandatory reading, you know, to, to be alive today. So yeah, it, yeah. It's, no, it's great. It's, it was a great reread, especially in my sort of like 
you know, narcotically altered, pain altered state laying on the couch. It's a phenomenal book. It's a phenomenal book. And actually, I love what he says about meditation in the third book of that trilogy, really. So it's pretty fascinating. What didn't I ask you about that you want to talk about? Oh, I didn't ask you why art matters. Oh, my gosh. You know, getting back to like the calamity of life and the calamity of the world right now and the sort of complexity of the world. You know, I mean, I think maybe art helps us navigate things. And I think sometimes we can't really navigate them with language. For me, I've tried to, language has been both an impediment and a, a way forward in my own work. You asked me about why it, does art matter? And I'm like, I'm sorry, but I'm being my typical circuitous self and saying that like a lot of my work, I had real big philosophical moral issues, like why be an artist? How does art help the world? I mean, wouldn't I be better being a doctor or something or a teacher, something where there's some, some really definable way that one is like helping the world. And I've gotten myself into these conundrums about paintings dead, you know, I don't know, what am I going to do? And language got me into these places and language got me out, right? Like, you know, I sort of like conceptualized my way through these little roadblocks. Generally started almost looking at art as an act of faith, almost something that can't be rationalized. And I think therein lies like maybe it's power in that there's some not something, the, the nonverbal language of art, the things that, that can happen inside art that can't be said with words are sometimes really important. You can feel those things and you can intuit those things. You don't need to necessarily name them with language. And I think that sometimes art can get into that interstitial space beyond language that can help us navigate a world that is just beyond what we can summon up with language. When I see a work that I can connect with, it's not because it's smart or maybe it's, it is smart, maybe I can like it on that level, but because I feel it, you know, in my body, in my gut, like I look at it, like if I look at, say, I don't know, a Carrie James Marshall, for instance, I, you know, like I just like all this, this empathy and beauty and intelligence, it comes through, but I don't have to, when I'm experiencing it, I'm not naming it, I'm just experiencing it. That to me feels really um, important. You know, and it feels like it makes my life infinitely more rich, you know, for having had that experience. Thank you so much for talking with me today. I, I don't know, I'm like fine on an everyday level doing what I'm doing, you know, and, and then I have conversations like this and I'm like, I, I miss it. I miss being in the artist studio and I miss having these long, thoughtful you know, meandering, impactful, um, productive, provocative conversations with artists. So thank you for, thank you for talking with me today. Thanks for talking to me. It was really fun. I always like talking to you. I know. I always like talking to you too. Thanks so much for listening today. Join us next time when I speak with another friend and artist, Leo Villarreal. He's got such an incredible story and the way that he brings math into art and mirrors 
technology and artistic practice and artistic practice with technology and the way he brings his work out into the world to the broadest possible audience, many of whom might not even know at first that they're looking at art, is particularly inspiring to me. Conversations About Art is part of HiZ.Art, a multi-platform project that connects all to art through a podcast series, books, talks program, brand collaborations, TV, and more. This episode was produced by Hallie Zander. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougall. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listened, as it helps us further our goal of connecting all to art. We will be back again every other Tuesday with new episodes. Thank you for listening.